the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. My friend Molly Hemingway, she's a senior editor uh, at The Federalist. Molly, I'm just so glad uh, to, to get you on here today. Thanks for being with us. It's great to be here with you. And I, I only would refer to hair and stuff like that if if you looked good, you know what I mean? Because a lot of times people come on here and it's obvious that they didn't know that they were being videotaped. Albin, I'm not talking about you, I swear. So Molly, you are constantly, you're a real reporter. I just want to know in general, what do you make of what's going on? There are a number of things I want to touch on with you, but right now, today is what? Wednesday. What What, what do you think is happening right now? Where are we in the nation? Well, that is an extremely big question, and I'm not yes. quite quite sure what to think of all of it. It's been such a crazy couple of months, and when it comes to how the media are handling the last couple of months, I don't think they've been up to the job. Um, and part of that is just maybe fear or uh, yeah, fear about what, what they've been going through with the global pandemic. It might also be... Um, well, obviously, the they're not well suited to handle moments of crisis. There's not a lot of context or nuance in reporting, and there never has been, frankly. Uh, but then this particular... I have the great privilege now. The orange man bad moment, everything is wrapped up in a desire to somehow harm Donald Trump. That's a really bad combination for good reporting in a global pandemic, because it just colors literally everything about federal response, state responses, international responses... Everything has to be viewed through the prism of defeating Donald Trump in the November election. And so it makes it very difficult to kind of trust what people are saying. In the, right. In I mean, if you ever wanted to see the cravenness of uh, the journalistic class on parade, really see it clearly, this pandemic uh, is a blessing. It's like solving for X. Suddenly, everything's on one side of the equation. You can see the perfect value of X. I'm talking algebra. And what I'm seeing Actually, the most horrific aspect of it, I mean, if we really want to look at it, the idea that the New York Times and the Atlantic, which used to be, you know, uh, left-leaning but reputable journalistic organs, the idea that they would openly side with China, a, a, a communist enemy uh, of, of freedom around the world and certainly of ours, against this president, who, by the way, was not elected by his base, but by the American people. We elected him president, in case anybody, you know, wonders how he got there. That, to me, is the most dramatic and horrifying thing. Well, and it shows it really isn't just about Trump in this case. You know, CNN had a story today about how China has handled um, the pandemic better than the United States has by being authoritarian. The Atlantic, as you mentioned, had that 
call to limit free speech more in line with the way China limits free speech. The New York Times followed up and said, yes, we need to restrict First Amendment uh, freedoms in order to tackle global pandemics. I think it's actually not completely surprising that some progressives would seek to control speech at a time like this because they seek to control speech at other times as well. And this presents a better opportunity, but it is a huge wake up call. I mean, so you, it's just as an average American, you think about what you're going through. You're trying to handle a global pandemic. You're trying to deal with economic catastrophe. You have all sorts of social problems like children being out of school um, and, you know, just the loneliness, which already is a problem becoming worse. Uh, And then you also have threats to civil liberties First Amendment rights being trampled left and right. Like the one that seems to be okay is freedom of the press, but the press at the same time are saying we should restrict speech, we should restrict right to assembly, we definitely need to restrict right to worship. And so there are all these major crises going on at the same time. It's a lot to handle for just the average citizen. I think people are willing to handle things on a temporary basis. The longer this drags out, particularly the longer it drags out with none of what we were told would happen coming even close to happening. Um, I think we're going to, I hope we're going to start seeing a little bit more um, critical thinking about some of the measures that have taken place. Well, I'm, I marvel uh, at your level headedness. My instinct is just to to foam at the mouth and, 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 flail at the air in front of me. I, I am, uh, after decades, uh, canceling my subscription to the New York Times. I, I simply cannot believe what I have seen. Uh, this is you know, tantamount to, to siding with Hitler. When you cannot uh, understand the gravity of the situation and, and be a grown-up and, and try to see what this administration is trying to do on behalf of the American people when you can only see through partisan eyes to this extent. I mean, they've been doing this for, for, for a while, but this is a new low. Honestly, I I simply cannot believe that, that the, 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 the cultural elites, even now, even when they're forced to see what you would think, uh, or, or I should say, even when I would think that they would be forced to see some fundamentals they're not seeing them, and they are, to use the cliche, doubling down on what we feared they believed. I do agree it's worse, but I think it's also worth remembering that the New York Times does not have a particularly good track record on some major issues. I mean, they were apologists for communists uh, in Russia, for the Soviet Union, you know, the Walter Durante situation where their reporter was just feeding propaganda to American readers for many, many years. There was also their problem of downplaying the Holocaust or failing to mention it or cover it. Well, and that's the bad news. There was also a lot of good news about how the New York Times had been covering things. I mean, it really was a paper that Americans could count on to cover global issues. And, you know, they were, they did suffer at the hands of China there. They've had their reporters kicked out recently. Um, so they're, it's not that they're all bad or that all their, all their coverage is not to be trusted. It's just worth remembering that they have had some blind spots in the past that are just very, very serious. And the Holocaust and Soviet, um, oppression are two of those. But more recently, you know, they've also had some really bad, they've done really bad jobs on things that are very important, whether it's the Brett Kavanaugh uh, confirmation and how they handled accusations against him, the Russia collusion conspiracy theory that they claimed they built their newsroom around to, to peddle that. And it was all completely false. So 
they have a problem and you are not unwise to recognize that problem, but it's a, it's a much longer history. Well, I mean, look, I guess it's one thing uh, in the 1930s to get things wrong. Uh, But in this day and age, we have a level of, uh, you know, reach uh, because of the internet, uh, because of the, the, the global situation in which we find ourselves in technology, to see things that we never could have seen. I mean, if, if somebody, if the Soviet Union uh, wants uh, to put up a Potemkin village and fool you, you know, they, they, have, they, they have the ability to do that. They don't, uh, our, our, our enemies don't have the ability to do that nearly as well today. So this is why I don't, well, it, it, I, do, I mean, China has so much power and so many media companies are in bed with China and the, the Chinese communist government sort of has the best of both worlds, both being centrally commanding everything, but also having a very large market. And they really are able to wield that power against American companies, including media companies. I mean, it's not it's not a good situation, but it's not totally it's not that they don't also have challenges in how to how to report on China without angering a very powerful country and communist government. I know it's, it's a funny thing. You know, people talk about giving blood uh, during this time. I, w- I wish I could give, uh, you know, parts of my spine to folks at places like uh, the New York times and Google, because it seems to me, you just need a little courage to see what's at stake. And even Google, um, the Ericsson video, t- tell us about that uh, because, because I-, I was astounded. I didn't see, the the details of it until I watched Tucker Carlson last night, his opening segment, he covered it. Right. So these two ER docs give a press conference in their locality, which is Bakersfield, California, where they talk about their analysis of the COVID-19 situation and why they think that the lockdown is not in order anymore. And you can there's plenty that you could disagree with about these doctors, including how they extrapolated data from small populations into large populations. But what is utterly terrifying is that after 5 million people watched it and began thinking critically about responses to pandemics and whatnot, uh, the, the video was removed so that nobody could see it or respond to it. You know, I mean, the thing about ideas is you put them out there and if they need to be tested, they get to be tested by other people. This is a free society where this is supposed to happen. But we have all these tech corporations that are deciding that they will, they will decide what you can listen to, what you can think, what you can, what you can respond to. And they viewed that because this was so outside of the sort of World Health Organization consensus, not even that it was that far outside, it really wasn't, um, that it had to be shut down and that it, for people's protection, you had to limit this speech. Now, this is part of a pattern of control that is very disconcerting. I mean, it, it's been going on for many years. For me, when they refused to name the whistleblower who was involved in setting up the impeachment, that was really, that was really terrifying that they would do that. Um, They would like actually black out his name or white out his name. And um, who are we talking about Google or the times? Who are we talking about? Well, there were various tech companies like YouTube wouldn't let the name be shown and um, media companies all decided that they wouldn't talk about this publicly known name, even after it was reported. And you know, just from big to small people, people engaging in censorship that you would more associate with Soviet Union than United States of America. Well, I guess the question is, I mean, you're a real journalist, so I think you understand this better than most of us. I was never quite clear 
on why it was so terrible that they were unwilling to reveal the whistleblower. I feel like I never quite got it. Well, you never understood why you thought why it's a bad thing that they. Yeah, in other words, I, it was, something about it was never clear to me. What was it that was so surprising about that? Well, for instance, you have a United States senator on the floor of the Senate saying a name that people all decide you cannot say, and it's unclear why you can't say the name. Um, and it's it's public record. It's I mean, it couldn't be more public than a senator on the floor of the Senate saying a name or a legitimate news organization reporting that it's believed that it's this particular person. Um, there is this idea, I guess, that like one person in America gets to be protected from repercussions of actions, even though that person is a taxpayer funded individual. It's it's absurd but it happened, and it happened on a large scale, up to and including the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court refusing to say his name initially, um, and it's just not healthy for the Republic. What was that during the hearings that Roberts refused to to say anything? Exactly during the impeachment hearings, he refused to read a question that included the name, even though this person was undeniably involved, and that the question was legitimate. Yeah, Robert strikes me as as one of these people who goes a little too far out of his way to seem uh, objective or not partial, and that's that's the classic. Uh, it's the classic case. It was crazy. Who is the senator who named the whistleblower? Rand Paul. Okay, so yes, and and in other words, what, part of what I'm getting is that you're saying that the media decides to go against. Uh, a U.S. senator, effectively, to blot him out because they don't agree with his agenda. Molly, we're talking about so much right now. Um, are, are you aware of what happened uh, recently with Governor Cuomo in New York, uh, allowing COVID patients to be sent back to um, uh, to nursing homes? Well, yes, I, I, I know that, first of all, that that's that nursing homes are the area where people are most vulnerable, that a lot of deaths in New York, as well as other places, have been in nursing homes. And Cuomo recently said that he was not aware of the policy from his government that people with COVID-19 should be sent back to nursing homes, uh, although there seems to be some evidence that that's not quite right. Okay. Um, we, we just had uh, John Zmirak uh, on who was reporting on that. He's written an article about it at the stream. And it's it's really horrifying, obviously, because the one thing that we know we must do is protect those vulnerable populations. In other words, we've done all kinds of things. And, you know, we've we've uh, wielded scalpels to deal with, in some cases, mosquito bites. And yet in this case, uh, there's a mosquito bite that we're, we're it seems like we're, we're avoiding treating or at least Cuomo is. That's just something I wanted to. To, to follow up on. I want to go back to China and WHO. Um, I am, uh, I'm aghast really that, uh, that we ever funded the WHO in recent years because they seemed clearly to be mouthpieces for, uh, for the Chinese le- leadership. Um, do you suppose uh, that uh, we will take a harder stand on that, or or is this something that we just are going to continue to look the other way? One might wish that there would be more accountability for the massive amounts of taxpayer dollars that are sent in the direction of the World Health Organization. It is just an objective reality that they are supposed to be handling global pandemics, and they did a very 
poor job of this, in part because of their close ties to China. I don't actually understand why those ties are so close, given that the United States spend, is, is responsible for such a large portion of their budget, and China is not really at all. Well, isn't it just what we used to call corruption? It's good old-fashioned corruption. In other words, anything associated with the UN or anything that's happening, uh, you know, that's officially global certainly doesn't have my buy-in as an American. I have not been ever convinced that, uh, you know, uh, bureaucrats in Brussels or or, or anyone claiming uh, to speak globally uh, should should have the authority to, to do that. It just seems to me like a, a strange thing that we would kind of assume that they would have our best interests at heart. Well, it's just interesting. We're at a time when we're having these big debates about globalization versus national interest. This should be a moment for people who really believe in global governance to shine. A global pandemic that crosses borders. And yet what's really happening, I think, is people think through, okay, this is why nations have borders. This is why they need to enforce those borders. This is why they need to care about their own national interests. Because you couldn't have a better example of what globalization is supposed to accomplish than the World Health Organization. And they have had, you know, they have had successes in their past, but just complete failure at a at the moment when they are most needed and every nation pretty much immediately reverted to saying, okay, we've got to, we've got to work on our own citizens, have our borders in in control and uh, focus on our own national interest. Well, I guess I can't help thinking about the, uh, the UN peacekeepers raping the people they were supposed to be protecting. In other words, I have lost all confidence in anything uh, having to do with the UN or the WHO. It would be fun to talk about uh, Joe Biden, just because it's always fun to talk about Joe Biden. We can talk about corn pop, we can talk about the razors that we used to use in those days, the straight razors. Uh, what are you thinking these days about Joe Biden? I think he's actually in a very difficult position. It's it's hard to campaign when there are no chances to have any public events from donor events to rallies. Um, on the other hand, he kind of seemed like he wanted to be off the public stage. I was going to say, having- doesn't it redound to his benefit that that he can't, It's it's kind of like, he can't make gaffes. There are guard. There's a guardrail called the shutdown, and he he can cannot drive off the cliff. Yes, that's the benefit. But the downside is primaries are being canceled. He can't have that slow drip or the momentum building that leads you to a convention, which is a big part of generating enthusiasm and getting voters on board. And then also he has this issue of a sexual assault allegation coming out against him, you know, as he's trying to secure all the delegates he needs to to wrap up the nomination. I, I have to say, uh, it will probably surprise some people, I have, uh, you know, a confused reaction uh, to the sexual assault allegations, because it's the kind of same thing that seems to happen all the time, that, that allegations come out, and it, it's become just a a political weapon. In other words, the idea that this woman uh, is bringing something up that happened almost three decades ago, I say as someone who does not, uh, I'm not a fan of Joe Biden, but it does seem, you know, bizarre to me that you say nothing for all this time or that you, you don't speak about it publicly when it happens because you have respect, out of respect for the senator. That's what she said at the time. And then she brings it up now. Uh, it seems completely plausible, but it's just we're living in such confused times. I, I I don't know what to make of it. In other words, I want to be fair in the sense that when they bring this up against Kavanaugh at the last minute. Now, the difference is in the Kavanaugh case, it was complete nonsense. But uh, even when it's true, 
uh, when, when it's it's from so long ago, I just think that we've really devolved into the to the ugliest, basest way of conducting, uh, you know, politics. Right. I think that's absolutely correct. And it's important that people understand that when accusations are made, uh, the accused is presumed innocent until such time as the evidence um, makes you reach a different conclusion, whether that's happening in a court of law or just in your own critical thinking. But it's very important that we understand due process and presumption of innocence. What is fascinating is that we have a media who seem to have rediscovered this in that they are working so hard to defend, almost as if they're defense lawyers, Joe Biden against this accusation coming from a former employee of his. He may not be guilty and he should be presumed innocent, but the media are definitely guilty in how they're covering this. And I think it was just not even two years ago when they threw every standard of due process or decency out the window in an attempt to not just keep Brett Kavanaugh from from being confirmed to the United States Supreme Court, but to destroy his very life. You know, this is a father, a husband, he has young daughters, and media all engaged in a, in a group activity in an attempt to destroy his life. So then when you see with Joe Biden, someone puts forth an accusation that this is not a high bar by any stretch of the imagination, but is a stronger um, accusation than the one levied against Brett Kavanaugh in that she actually met the person she's accusing. Um, she has evidence that she told people at the time of the alleged incident. And there's actually quite a bit of evidence that she definitely told people in the early 90s that this happened. That is so much stronger than anything that happened with Brett Kavanaugh, where his accuser had no evidence that she'd ever met him. And the four witnesses that she named all said they had no idea what she was talking about. Uh, her best friend from childhood said, I actually don't believe her story. Um, you know, she had a history of saying false things, like she was afraid to fly when she's not, when she was like flying all the time so that she could avoid coming out to D.C. to give her testimony. So the media had no trouble at all, not just believing Christine Blasey Ford, but using her story to destroy a man that they didn't like. But with Joe Biden, a man that they clearly have political affinity for, with a stronger story from someone who at least told people at the time and has evidence that she met him, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't really believe this one. Well, that's, that's fine if they hadn't done what they'd done to Brett Kavanaugh just two right. years ago. They right. weaponize the Me Too movement. And it's so obvious and it's so disgusting, actually, that it, they need to be held accountable for it. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, and this is, of course, what we should be focusing on is the, 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 the sickening double standard in a free culture to have a press that is so biased that they're unwilling even to ask him. I mean, I don't know how many morning programs he was on this past Sunday uh, from whatever bunker he's in. It, it is hilarious to me that none of them uh, was willing to broach this utterly legitimate at this point subject with him, if only to give him an opportunity to defend himself or to say something. Well, not just that. When Carrie Severino and I wrote our book, Justice on Trial, about the Kavanaugh confirmation, we interviewed so many people who were involved in the story, including people who are not public, but who publicly defended Brett Kavanaugh, people who were friends in high school or college or you know that type of person. They received so much animosity from the media for speaking out in defense of their friend, Brett Kavanaugh, that they all told us horrifying stories about what that was like. Meanwhile, you have former Senator Hillary Clinton, former presidential candidate endorsing 
Joe Biden, former President Obama endorsing Joe Biden. Nobody's asking any tough questions of these people. You know, they're not, they're, they are people who are used to or should be used to having been asked tough questions. All those senators who are in Joe Biden's party, they could be asked a ton of tough questions. Nancy Pelosi, no questions, none at all. Or they're phrased in such a way as to just be um, perfunctory at the end of an in- interview, like, would you like to dismiss this story from Tara Reid, Joe Biden's accuser, would be happy to help you do that. Um, they're nothing like the media onslaught that Brett Kavanaugh and his advocates faced. Well, I, I feel like, and that's a, that's a great point. Tell us the title again of your, the book with Kerry Severino. Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Supreme Court. We have uh, people who are interested in my interview with you and Carrie on that. They can look at our YouTube page, The Eric Metaxas Show. Very important conversation that, that we had together uh, some months ago and very, very important book, Justice on Trial. Um, I just want to ask you, it seems to me that the Tara Reid accusations are almost a, a welcome distraction from the actual campaign of Joe Biden. In other words, I cannot imagine... Uh, that at this point, uh, he is a viable candidate. He seems like a a husk. Uh, He seems like someone who every time he speaks uh, just becomes lost in his own sentences. I still have this uh, conspiracy theory that the party mandarins, the elders, are eventually going to figure out a way uh, to push him aside and to replace him with someone whom they think can beat Trump? It's not an insane thought. I mean, when you look at how much they tried not to get behind him, only doing so when it was down to him versus Bernie Sanders, then finally did Obama and everybody else say, okay, we got to push this guy over the finish line. But they didn't want to. And so um, the problem with pushing him aside now is that you still have a Bernie Sanders problem. And I'm not sure they want to go down that road. But you have to just think sensibly, yes, Trump is vulnerable. And yes, a lot of people don't want to vote for him and they'll vote for, a, you know, corn husk of anybody, but they, it might not, who knows? I don't know what they'll do, but I'm sure the Democratic Party is not elated by what's going on. My, my crazy theory all along has been that Hillary Clinton has been, has been waiting in her crypt uh, to, to come out and she knows that she was born for this moment. She knows that uh, America longs for uh, her to be the first female president and to take us away from the madness of economic sanity and, and good leadership. And I just have this crazy idea that she, maybe with Andrew Cuomo as her running mate, would be, would be wheeled out and forced uh, on uh, on, on the Democratic, uh, you know, electorate uh, and say, look, we want to win. We can no longer win because the Tara Reid stuff is plausible and or whatever it is. But it just seems to me that this is something that I can easily see happening just because of how nefarious Hillary uh, is. Right. It has a certain goodness to it in that there are a lot of people who love Hillary Clinton and would love to vote for her again. And there are a lot of people who felt a highlight of their life was watching her lose in 2016. So it could bring joy to large groups of people to have the same matchup as as was had in 2016. But I don't know. I think there are so many obstacles. The Democratic Party actually has more control over the delegate process than the Republican Party does. It's kind of the opposite of what you might think. Um, I don't know if they have that 
enough control to be able to force something like that. I think a lot of people were talking about Andrew Cuomo, particularly early on before New York became sort of the the um, the place where all the bad stuff was happening with coronavirus. Although the media seemed to think that that's no problem, no barrier for his future political rise. Um, but the guy who's been governor for 10 years and so really is responsible for any preparation or lack thereof for the coronavirus pandemic um, is somehow having a really good moment. I don't know if the rest of the country shares the media's viewpoint on his control of the situation there, but the media... Well, look, the, whole, the whole thing's ridiculous. Just to give you a little context, about 4,000 years ago, there was a guy named Beto O'Rourke, and everybody was getting behind him. He was obviously born uh, for, the, for the presidency. So the, the, the fecklessness of uh, the media is, it's just ex- so extraordinary that I, I think that they, they will go with whoever, you know, who, whoever the chattering classes are talking about yesterday or this morning, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. But I guess if, if there were anyone nefarious enough uh, to pull whatever strings can be pulled, I would say Hillary Clinton is that person. And so I still don't, uh, I don't think it's impossible for something bizarre like that to happen, because I think let, let's be honest, um, Joe Biden, uh, whatever polls say, he can't possibly win. He has presented himself so tremendously poorly that I just think a lot of people are going to stay home. And you know that the Bernie voters are going to stay home. Well, I don't know. Again, what you said earlier kind of applies here, though. He's off the stage. The less people see of him, the more they think of him as the Joe Biden of old, the more moderate, less extreme as he's become guy who seemed kind of friendly, who was with Barack Obama, a guy they generally like. So the more he can stay off the stage, the better it can be for him. The problem really seems to be when he's speaking. And it's not like Donald Trump is some, um, you know, like these are two men who really struggle with sentences sometimes. But there's a complete difference in their struggles, whereas Donald Trump is kind of circuitous in the way he talks. He really seems to process information and, you know, be able to handle like hours long press conferences. Joe Biden seems to weaken minute by minute. We saw that in the debates. We see this even with his daily press briefing or, you know, non-press briefings that he's having in his home. Um, There are struggles. I mean, struggles that I think we're all familiar with when you, when you can't quite capture the word or, um, and it's not, you know, it might not be a barrier, but I think it doesn't quite give the confidence you want when you're thinking about making a switch in a presidency, particularly a switch back to an old way of doing things that has kind of been rejected. I knew I could count on you for some actual context. I hate you for that. I wanted you to just run with my conspiracy theory, but what are you going to do? Hey, speaking of conspiracy theories and and, uh, nightmares, let's talk about uh, General Flynn for a moment. Where are we with that? It's interesting. This is a guy who pled guilty to lying to the FBI about a conversation he had with Russian ambassador Kislyak. It was a weird plea because a lot of people didn't, you know, even the people who interviewed him at the FBI didn't think he was lying. It seemed like he might have been pressured into doing this, reporting that he pre- he was pressured into doing it because he was worried about legal vulnerabilities of one of his children. Uh, but the defense or the prosecution has not been having a particularly good time in recent weeks. And right now we've got um, judges considering different things, including release of information that some have said is exculpatory for, for Mike Flynn. We learned yesterday that his previous attorneys, who already were kind of known to have not done a particularly good job, had forgotten to turn over 
thousands, like 7,000 pages of documents that were relevant to a question of whether Flynn had had good counsel or not when he was uh, previously served by Co- Covington is the name of the law firm. And so um, things look very interesting for Mike Flynn at the moment. He, he, you know, he already pled guilty. It's very difficult for, for anything to change once you've pled guilty, but the prosecution might be having such a bad time of things that they might, <laughs> might, we might actually see some, something dramatic happening. Right. I, I think uh, Trump is brilliantly uh, playing poker here and, uh, when he wins his second term, uh, he will pardon Flynn and renominate him to the position that he ought to have had, and it will be scorched earth with Trump's enemies. Just a thought. I think he'll be pardoned if he needs to be pardoned, but at right. this point, the legal process itself might take care of the situation. Um, so that would, of course, be preferable to you. Would you'd want the legal system? to understand if errors have been made and to correct things. Now, if they don't, I think a pardon is probably beyond, you know, I think that would very likely happen. But um, for his sake, for Flynn's sake, it would be nice to have exoneration in the courts. But you don't think that, that the president would renominate him to that position and say, hey, let's do it again. Let's go. I don't know. I think he's very happy with his current national security advisor. But yes, there, that would be kind of interesting and very um, a nice a nice circular Trumpian thing to have happen in the second term. I, I tell you, I think the way he has been treated, I mean, I've spoken to this a few times, but that if I hated him because of the way he has been treated, I would just because of the way I am sympathize with him and ultimately side with him because I have never, I've never seen anything like it. The viciousness of, of his enemies uh, has been to my mind, in some cases really despicable. Well, he and Carter Page stand out as the two people who really were most wronged by this treasonous collusion conspiracy theory that the media and certain uh, intelligence officials peddled to the American people. But, you know, with Carter Page, it really is just a horrible thing. Innocent Americans spied on and having everything gone through by his government for more than a year, having his name trashed. And that's really bad. With Mike Flynn, you know, again, whatever you think of him, and I know people who like him or don't like his policies or whatnot. This guy's a general who served his country very well, who was the victim of a criminal leak of classified information by government attorneys. They peddled it to David Ignatius at the Washington Post. He reprints it, accuses him of a Logan Act violation, sets off a whole string of events, and it was really just horrible. Well, um, as I say, I I think that, you know, to use the cliche, the chickens are going to come home to roost. We, We have seen things... Uh, in the last few years that we have never seen. I mean, th- th- just imagine the idea that we are speaking about a a government uh, collusion narrative peddled to take down a president. I mean, are, are, did we make that up? No, that <laughs> happened. Uh, it, I really think, you know, people are going are, are gonna to have to pay for that one way or the other. I'm so sorry we're out of time. Molly Hemingway, it's just great uh, to have you here. We'll get you back as soon as possible. Thank you so much. Sounds great. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. I want to talk to you for a moment about a group I've done work with for years, ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. You've seen how your freedom is under attack? Go to townhallreview.com to find out how you can join Alliance Defending Freedom to help ensure the opponents of freedom don't dictate your future. That's townhallreview.com. If you enjoy your podcast, take a moment, tell a friend to subscribe today. This is Jerry Boyer for townhall.com. We're now engaged in a national discussion about how to balance public health and economic health. It's the right discussion to have. 
We need to embrace both as goals, not sacrifice one to another. But I'd like to add culture to the equation. Quarantines are essential during a pandemic. Economic growth is essential, too, because poverty kills. But so are certain cultural institutions and patterns. Private associations can also be essential. Churches, synagogues, and recovery groups stand between us and despair and even death. No, I'm not calling for civil disobedience by worshipers, but I am calling for civil officials to obey their mandate to uphold the public good by fully counting the cost of what is shut down and for how long it's shut down. As we move towards resumption of our activities, our public servants should give deference to what is the most life-sustaining public gathering for tens of millions of Americans. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu